This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Angelic Encounters for the full two hours. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to like it, share it, and subscribe. Now, when you're on the YouTube channel, you'll notice I've recently updated a special video version of my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. It's an interview with Deep Throat's lawyer, John O'Connor. Uh, discussing the recent bombshell, the recovered emails from Hunter Biden's laptop. Again, that's available on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, so you may want to check out that episode after, of course, you listen to to, to, uh, tonight's transmission. What do you think of when you think of angels? For many people, angels are flowing, winged, female-type creatures who enlighten, nurture, and guide people here on earth. Some believe them to be spirit guides or benefactors, while others see them as mere protectors. Many people believe that they can be summoned or beckoned at the will of humans, while others don't believe in their existence at all. But the Bible describes angels very differently indeed. Envision around you, day and night, a valiant, thriving battle between good and evil, raging within a shrouded jurisdiction. This army surrounds you each step you take, intervenes on your behalf, and wages spiritual warfare when the human soul is at stake. Angels are the servants of the Almighty God, his messengers, agents of his will, and silent guardians who keep watch when you think you're alone. In Encounters, co-authors Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell dispel some of the many myths regarding these beings and reveal their true mission and purpose. Allie and Donna join me, uh, as I say, for the full two hours. Allie Anderson Henson oversees the research army of Skywatch TV and Defender Publishing. Her exploratory works have appeared in numerous books, documentaries, magazines, and television specials. Donna Howell is the best-selling author of The Handmaiden's Conspiracy, Radicals, Final Fire, Encounters, Afterlife, 
and Redeemed Unredeemable. She's the current managing editor and writer researcher for Defender Publishing and the co-host of Skywatch TV's Chalk Talk. She's appeared in numerous books, documentaries, magazines, and television specials. And again, together, they are co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. Ali and Donna, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. Let me start off by asking uh, Ali. I'll get you to respond, and and, uh, Donna, you can chime in afterwards if you want to add. But what what inspired you to write this book, Angelic Encounters? Well, um, thanks again for having us. It's great to be here. Um, We wrote this book in response to a crisis situation which we perceived was taking place in the church. And so when we're looking at the church right now, you know, unfortunately we live in a day and age where a lot of self-professed Christians do not read their Bible. And because of that, they're out of touch with what the Bible says, not only about God and, and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all about angels themselves, And what ends up happening is when we have a a New Age invasion of the church, it's very easy for a congregation that's not aware of what angels are and what they are not, it's very easy for them to become distracted with things like angel worship or angel contact that takes place outside of the biblical parameters of what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, I, I believe that everything in our lives... Is, um, is spiritual warfare. There's an unseen realm around us. And so when we are doing things like worshiping angels, um, you know, doing things that, that are, are, we're supposed to worship God, you know, and so, so this kind of stuff opens us up for spiritual deception and things like that. And so at, in response to this movement that's kind of taking place in the church, we wrote a book about what the Bible uh, defines angels to be. Right, and the the depiction of angels in the Bible, very different on many fronts. There are some similarities, but on many fronts, very different than the popular culture interpretation of angels that that have come down to us, well, not only from television shows, uh, but also, as we'll discuss, from uh, the Grecan, Greco-Roman uh, civilizations. Uh, Donna, over to you. Uh, just walk us through some of the types of myths you're looking to dispel with this book. You know, um, there's a lot of them that what I have a a major issue with, especially in some of um, the most recent revival uh, trends, is I hear a lot of people saying things like, I was in this revival meeting and all of a sudden these angel wings floated down from the ceiling and there was gold dust. And it's like, I kind of want to tell them to go find the, the, the man who's hiding in the rafters. You know what I'm saying? Because there's, there's things, uh, I can't tell you how many times white feathers comes into conversations where people use that as an example for, um, some kind of an angelic visitation that they've had. But to be honest with you, let me just use angel wings just as the ver- as, as one of oh so many things that we dispel. I'll hit that one hard and fast. Angels don't have wings. Not anywhere in the Bible do they have wings, ever. Um, the first argument that comes back is, well, wait a minute, in the throne room, we do have, see that the angels have wings. Now, that, that's actually technically not true, because in the throne room, what we have is the seraphim and the cherubim, uh, pronounced often in, in, in a contemporary language as the seraphim and the cherubim. But these, uh, these are not 
the same word, not in Greek or in Hebrew, not the same word as angel. In Greek, it's angelos, actually. And what we, what we have going on with them, they are messengers. That's what that word means in Greek. It means messenger. In fact, it's so intrinsically related to the idea of delivering a message on behalf of God or a king that at sometimes in, uh, such as in the book of Revelation, uh, the seven letters written to the angels of the seven churches of Revelation, that word is often interpreted uh, from the, certain theologians working on that area of Scripture to be a human, because the word in Greek can mean a human messenger as well. Um, right. But the in other words, the, the seven of, angels, the seven angels in those seven letters could have been the bishops of those churches, right? The spiritual leaders of those churches. That is absolutely a possibility. Now, mm. I am not, uh, I'm not like Michael Heiser level theologian when it comes to, I'm not a Greek, you know, scholar, but I will tell you that there are very convincing arguments on both sides of that. But what, when we're dealing with a heavenly messenger, a member of what certain theologians refer to as the heavenly host, what Ali and I decided to refer to as the celestial order, this is a parent term that kind of covers all of the different created beings that uh, work for, and, and, and work for is a very clumsy way of saying it, but it's very easy to understand, work for God in some fashion or other. Let me give you a little, a quick uh, hunting dog analogy that kind of helps me make my point. Got it. If a hunter goes into the woods and he pursues to kill game, to a system, he takes three dogs along with him. The first one's the pointer breed, and they identify the bush where the game is hiding. The second one's the flusher breed. They understand what angle to charge the bush so that the game will fly out in the right direction and give the hunter a good shot. And the third dog is the retriever breed. This is the breed that has the expert soft mouth handling characteristic that is known of that breed. Uh, these three breeds of dogs are all equally canine in nature. You can call them all canines. You can call them all dogs as a parent uh, word that encapsulates what they are. Um, they're all three equally assisting their master in his will in, in accomplishing the act of a hunt. Uh, however, you wouldn't say that all three of these dogs look like the, the other. You wouldn't say that they accomplish the same task or that they have the same bone structure or spots or anything else. So, uh, people, when, when, it would not be correct, however, to say that the pointer is the same as the flusher or the flusher is the same as a retriever. They can all be dogs. They can't all be the retriever. And so when we, when we're dealing with the Hebrew and the Greek words when it comes to angels, and this is only just to dispel the idea of wings and feathers and gold dust, gold dust isn't necessarily, gold dust isn't even a part of scripture. I'm not sure where that one comes from, but it's, it's rampant. Um, the seraphim and the, and, and the cherubim, uh, those are the ones that have wings and they are guardians of the throne. They are the guardians of the throne room. The, the, the cherubim, actually, they were also guardians of the gate of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve were locked out of Eden. So they are attendants to God. They don't leave God's side unless they're specifically sent to guard something. Angel, on the other hand, is a messenger, and nowhere in Scripture do you see that they have wings. Now, this is a subject that we can get into a little bit further down into the conversation, but the reason that we have wings everywhere and 
the fact that angels are so often in our um, our iconography today to be, you know, beautiful women or even worse, li- little babies that you feel more like you need to pick up and burp than that would protect you. These uh, these are definitely icons that draw their origin from some very disturbing places. Yes, and we'll we'll get into that. So that that's interesting. I wasn't aware. I mean. When we when we talk about the celestial order and and all of the entities in the divine council, uh, or the the celestial order, that the 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 uh, the seraphim and the cherubim are are not angels uh, in the in the way that we think of you know the messengers. There is a distinction there. I wasn't aware of that. I, something I didn't mention uh, to either of you last night, uh, and for those joining us, uh, Ali Anderson. Henson and Donna Howell were with me on Coast to Coast, so uh, they're doing uh, double duty, we're, and we're appreciative of that. Um, when my, mm-hmm. uh, I have twin boys, and when they were very young, we were at uh, their their godparents uh, for Christmas, and I was carrying my one uh, son outside, and he might have been two and a half, and um, he uh, outside he looked up into a tree, and he. He said he saw some sort of in his, you know, again, he's two and a half years old. He's uh, I'm paraphrasing, trying to remember. But he he talked he described an entity that had wings with eyes in the wings. And we had never talked to him about anything about seraphim or uh, cherubim or angels or anything like that. Um, And someone suggested that the eyes in the wings might be a description of a seraphim. Is that does that sound plausible? So um, sometimes I hesitate because I don't want to talk over Allie. We do actually have, uh, so like, for instance, in Ezekiel 10, 12, their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands, their wings, their wheels, they were covered with eyes. And so you have to wonder, because here's the funny thing. When you get to talking about the the, the cherubim, which is, is the uh, character in this particular uh, verse, you, you kind of have to start to differentiate from one theologian to another. There are theologians out there right now, and I'm sure, Richard, with the kind of uh, radio that you do, this is not new to you, that believe Ezekiel, that this, what we consider to be a theological mess in Ezekiel, there's people that think that this is a UFO. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so you kind of you have to go into this with understanding that, yes, there are definitely cherubim in the Word of God described with eyes in the wings. They're also, uh, depending on how Scripture is interpreted, they are the ones who are just, uh, the, li- the living creatures in the throne room at the end of the, bo- the Bible in Revelation that are given the four faces, the man, the eagle, the ox. Uh, and so you, you look at how these creatures, I shouldn't call them creatures, these creations, I, I apologize, are being described in the Word, and even the world's most brilliant theologians have moments where they go, you know, it really could be this, or it could be that. There's, assuming the the level of hubris that it would take to say that Ali, me, uh, Mike Heiser, any number of, of people who, who make it their, their life's work to study the Word has all the answers about God, that would just be hubris. On the other hand, I can tell you that there absolutely are some terrifying um, 
if not directly angels and angelic celestial host beings, as uh, described in the Bible. There's one in the book of Revelation that um, it says that his head is like a rainbow, and he stands with one foot in the sand and one foot on the sea. And so these these messengers of God are distinctly different from the, the, the description of what your son gave you. They're distinctly different. Now, it's interesting that you say your son mentioned what he saw. I don't know what, you know, I don't want to speak 100% to what your son saw, but I will tell you that, that cherubim are specifically uh, noted to be, um, they're guarding something, kind of like outside the, the, the Garden of Eden. They are garden, right. guard angels. So it's interesting that that's what your son said he saw. Right. And, and Lucifer was a, a cherubim, was he not? Was Lucifer a cherubim? I I have heard um, I have heard different scholars say that he was, and I've heard others say that he was a seraphim. Um, if you read into some of the places in Scripture where it talks about the seraphim, they're very close to the flame, and so there have even been some that have speculated that he could have even been a seraphim because of his. Um, uh, because of the fact that when he was cast out and then hell was created and there's fire, you know, that they've, they've kind of likened that to be an ironic uh, finality to his destiny. Um, and so it, it, it could be, but most of the reading that I've done has him, uh, has him higher than, uh, uh-huh. you know, a regular angel. You know, I mean, they call him a fallen angel, but the truth is most people who really describe what he was have him at a cherubim or a seraphim level. Okay. Then yeah, that's, let's, the thing uh, that's, kind of, that's the thing that's kind of difficult about that question that we get, because the word seraphim actually relates to fire. It means fiery ones. And so, and also, in a lot of like the, um, uh, what's it called, the, the hierarchy of the celestial beings, I, it's called on the celestial hierarchy, I think, but it's a 5th century document that was popularized by uh, several of the church fathers and the church historians. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was one of them. And, and this particular document has them listed in a specific order from top to bottom. Now, the hierarchy being the seraphim being at the very, very top, and the angels being at the very bottom. And then in the midst, you have, you know, the cherubim, the thrones, the virtues, the principalities. And so it's difficult to answer this question smoothly and briefly because the problem that, that this positions First of all, the Bible does not specifically say one way or the other. It, it refers to him by name, and it calls him, you know, uh, all of these moments when he's falling, it describes what he does, but it doesn't specifically uh, tend to to uh, consistently refer to him as one or the other. But what what happens over here in, in this hierarchy idea, which is, um, you know, like the kind of the Greek Orthodox, church is is mostly what adheres to these ideas. It's kind of what I was telling you earlier with the hunter dog analogy. For instance, they say, uh, and you know, the seraphim stood around him, each having six wings. That's Isaiah 6-2. But then over here they say, so, uh, therefore, Daniel 7-9, who make it to angels' spirits, he, his ministers a flaming fire. Fire having to do with the seraphim, but fire not necessarily having anything to do with the seraphim in Daniel 7, 9, because it says, who make it his angels, which is the uh, Hebrew term makal. So it's a little bit tricky because 
they're using one verse to talk about the six wings of the seraphim in Isaiah, and they're using another verse from Daniel that's talking about an angel but not a seraphim to talk about the flaming fire. So that's where some of that interpretation from the... the uh, I wish I could remember what it's called in Greek. It's 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 like de celesti hierarchy or something, but it, it means on the celestial hierarchy, and it uh, that document is very popularized. And I'm not necessarily saying you know, that the entire document is trash and it should be thrown out. It's extremely fascinating. But there are moments where they say, because the Bible says this about a seraphim, and then over here the Bible says this about the angels, we know that this is a descriptor of the seraphim, and that's not exactly true, since those are technically two different celestial okay. beings yeah. in the order I don't want to get too far, too far into the reads here, but let me just, we're almost um, heading into a break here. Just let me uh, get a couple of quick reactions. So, um, angels, do they, are they, are they immortal? Well, they actually, uh, they are created beings, and this means that they're eternal and not immortal. An immortal being has no beginning and no end. And we know from Psalm 148.5 that he commanded and they were created. Uh, he established them forever and ever. So he created them, but he made them uh, established forever and ever. So Technically, they are eternal, but not immortal. Okay. Do they take food or, or uh, drink? We know that they can when they appear as a human. Uh, you know, Hebrews 13.2 says uh, that you may be entertaining angels unawares. We see, in, um, we see in biblical examples of visitation that they, that they set with people. And, um, and they, they, we know that Lot, when they came to visit Lot in his home, that he, he made them food and gave them a place that they, they would have stayed the night if they would have stayed that long. Um, so we know that they can, they can at least do something that looks like sleep to us. We know that they can look like people and that they can eat food. Uh, are they omniscient? Uh, uh, can they be everywhere at once? Well, we, we know that they cannot because when we read in, in Daniel, where Daniel had begun to pray, and then he was, uh, the, in, the angel that was on his way to help him experienced a 21 delay uh, because of the prince of Persia, and the Michael, the archangel, came and helped him. And so if they, if they could be instantly everywhere at once, there would not have been that delay. And uh, can they read minds? Well... We believe that they cannot, and this is based on 1 Kings 8.39, where he's talking to God, and he says, For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all children of men. So while, while angels are able to visit us in our dreams and can probably put thoughts into our minds at God's command, um, and we know that the dark side can put thoughts into our minds, you know, and, and give us evil thoughts and evil temptations and things like that, they cannot, there, there's no biblical foundation for the notion um, that they can actually read and take information out of our minds. All right. Uh, Ali and Donna, stay put. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into what the Bible says about God's messengers. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Allie Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. And we'll get into some uh, 
stories of angelic interventions that were uh, relayed to Ali and Donna. Uh, and then in the second hour, we'll also invite uh, listeners to call, perhaps with their own angelic encounters, uh, or they may have other questions and comments regarding the true nature and the true purpose of uh, God's messengers, angels. Um, so a couple other quick uh, questions. And, and uh, we were talking about misconceptions about angels. And one of the sort of the new age notions of, of angels is that they are uh, they're, they're dead relatives. They become angels. Uh, you know, every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. These are people who have passed on and they become God's messengers or they are spirit guides uh, or servants. Um, another, well, what are some of the other misconceptions that, that, that we have about angels, either Donna or Allie? One thing I would say really quickly, just to correct something I said a moment ago, because I definitely don't want to mislead. Lucifer uh, was in a few verses referred to as the cherub. That's actually why to this day there are uh, studies and theologies that refer to him as the anointed cherub who fell. Um, that can be found in a couple scripture verses in Isaiah as well as Ezekiel. Uh, my point earlier was that when you get into different versions of orthodoxy in this church versus that church in the history and the father, church fathers, there's interpretational um, threads that kind of branch out and go into a different uh, a different kind of conclusion that would refer to him as seraphim. I did not, I, so I apologize for that if that was a bit confusing. That's okay. That's okay. Um, all right. So some of the other misconceptions that we have about uh, angels. I think that the biggest misconception that I've seen, and this is for me the most alarming one, and that is the idea that they are our spirit guides. Um, well, I take my theology from the King James Bible. And there's really nothing that I've ever run across in the Bible to, um, to suggest that, our, that angels come to us and put us through tests or teach us life lessons. It seems that they give a message from God or they perform some kind of a miraculous intervention or they perform some kind of a ministry and then they leave. There's very little conversation. So the misconception, um, to truncate a story briefly, I knew this girl. And, uh, and she was talking to me, telling me just how tired she had been and how hard, you know, life was really hard and her marriage was having trouble and there was just a lot going on in her life and she was exhausted all the time. And then she mentioned that she wakes up more tired than when she goes to sleep. And I said, well, you know, I mean, what's, what's that about? Are you, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking it's her bed or her pillow or, you know, something like that. And she says, no, my spirit guide is just wearing me out right now. And I said, I, hold back up. What do you mean? And she starts telling me that, um, that she, um, she had a friend that was into some, uh, some, some different kinds of, um, of witchcraft practices. And this friend sent an entity to her, which was supposed to be her spirit guide. And, um, this, this entity was supposed to help her sharpen all her skills and get her mind, uh, to, to increase its power and to do all of these things for her so that she would do a better job navigating her life, basically. And so this, this, this being was coming to her at night and it was wearing her out. And, but she, I mean, she had to worship it and she had to perform all these things for it, all the tests that it tried to make her do. And she, for some reason, thought that this was a holy angel that had been sent to her by God. And for mm -hmm. me, this is, this is where it goes back to, you know, the fact that everything around us is spiritual warfare. 
And the Bible tells us that what we bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So what we worship matters. What we pay our attention to matters, and the energies that we feed matter. And so when we have something that is negative and is not a holy entity that's coming to us, and we're, we're you know, worshiping it or strengthening it and feeding it energy, what ends up happening is we are strengthening evil forces in our lives, to work in our lives. And so this is where it's really important to, this is why we wrote the book, it's really important to understand what angels are, so that when we interact with something that is an angel, that we know how to interact with it. And when we're interacting with something that's not an angel, we're able to recognize it. And so, you know, we have... Um, biblical examples of what a visitation looks like, and as I said, they're usually pretty brief. You know, the angel comes, he does something God sent him to do, and then he, he moves right along. You know, we don't have this lingering conversation, we don't have them tasking and testing and teaching us how to increase our power and things like that. And we see, you know, uh, from, from Revelation 22, that an angel will stop you from worshiping it. If it's been sent by God, you know, we see this example in Revelation where he said, See thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant. And then he says, Worship God. You know, um, we also understand that when we worship the creation more than the Creator, we turn the truth of God into a lie. That's Romans one twenty-five. And so what we have to do is test the spirits. And this is how we can dispel these misconceptions about are you dealing with a holy angel or are you dealing with a negative entity? You know, you test the spirits, and it's a pretty simple test. If it will tell you uh, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is the Son of God and has died for our redemption, you know, and was risen again and, and awaits, you know, at the right hand of the Father, these are things mm -hmm. that a holy angel will tell you. And if it won't say that then you're not dealing with a, a holy angel. It's very likely you've got a dark entity there. And, and this is the practice of deception, because if they can get you deceived into strengthening the wrong forces in your life, you, they can trick you into self-sabotage. What, what, that, that's the easiest way for them to win the battle of, for your soul, is to trick you into doing it yourself. Right, right. So, yeah, as you say, all the more important to really, truly understand uh, the the true nature of, of God's messengers and angels and what the Bible says. Uh, so, Donna, let me ask you, we, we, we alluded to this earlier, the pagan origins of of angels and, and why we're getting it so wrong. And the roots of this go back to, um, well, Greco-Roman times. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, actually, okay, so before the, the, the Greco-Roman uh, times were, were, were the only technical authority for iconography or the imagery of angels, our ideas about them, the Church actually did allow, up um, early through the first several centuries, for um, different, you know, kinds of artwork and, and for people to paint what, what the Word said, and it looked like a man. Uh, it, sometimes it was a man with, you know, the glory rays or something coming off of him, but it was a man. It was theologically accurate. What happened was the first Byzantine iconoclasm was in, you know, circa 725 to 785 AD. All religious works of art that the official church of the time 
uh, could were destroyed. Now, this was to avoid um, object veneration or idolatry. So a Christian who worships a statue or a painting of God instead of God himself. That's what the the motive was behind this, at least religiously. And secular powers had their reasons as well, and that's a long story. So it, it became kind of an irony thing, because owning any different kinds of art that depicted God, his angels, or the saints, uh, Mary, the apostles, uh, the Trinity, any chief servants of God, anything, owning any art or uh, even a, a wall in your church with a fresco on it, would, would have to be destroyed in this iconoclasm. What happened in this when human created art and, and, and it, it went, it went to another level that also kind of intrinsically designed itself to mess with the Joan of Arc trial, which is very central to some of our pagan ideas of angels, um, and, and how the weakness of, of angels was introduced into our culture. The human-created art, or even descriptions of any of these religiously-natured servants of God, served to condescend God. In other words, you can't capture God in an image or his servants, and if you try, you're condescending them to your own little human artist box. So when all of these images were destroyed, when all of the theologically accurate depictions excuse me, of God's angels were destroyed, the only thing that was there at the time that was culturally relevant and everywhere. The road was paved for the pagan iconography to heavily influence the religious art or the descriptions of biblical beings at that time. So Greece and Rome were the drawing board from which the resurgence of these angelic icons emerged. In art, uh, I, I like to say it this way is the easiest way of saying it, Christian angels were nearly indistinguishable from their pagan counterparts of the Greco-Roman mythological pantheon. So their gods and their goddesses in uh, Greece and then later Rome became uh, uh, all that we knew the Christian angels to look like. you got to remember that the origins of the Greco-Roman mythological gods and goddesses was predominantly built upon sexually deviant relationships. Um, okay, I've got to jump in here. Sure. Excuse me, Donna. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, sure. continue to talk about the pagan origins of angelic iconography from the Byzantine iconoclasm. Ali Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, stay with us. Encounters is the book. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we will get to your calls after the uh, top of the hour. So going into the second hour, we'll begin to um, open up the phone lines and, and take questions, comments. And also, we'd like to hear about your angelic encounters. Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell here, co-authors of Encounters. Extraordinary accounts of angelic intervention and what the Bible actually says about God's messengers. And Donna, we were talking about the uh, the iconography that was banned uh, by the church uh, for a spell in the 8th century. And that kind of created a vacuum. So mm-hmm. people then looked back to uh, for their their images of, of angels. They relied on these pagan images. And that introduces us to uh, uh, Eros. 
um, which we're all familiar with uh, from Valentine's Day and so forth. So uh, talk to me about uh, about um, again this this pagan influence over our our angels. Right. Okay. So the the, the pantheon, the Greco-Roman pantheon, a lot of the gods and goddesses from that lineup, their their whole role model uh, story of their origin story is based on marital infidelity, um, necrophilia sometimes, incest all over the place, um, hermaphroditic gods and goddesses. Uh, it's just kind of this weird liberal thing that has nothing to do with Christianity. So the intellectualism then again of the Renaissance following right behind this um, this allowed for a religious syncretism. Now, what religious syncretism is in a nutshell is when religions blend together. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church lost some of its societal control during kind of this great secular awakening of the Renaissance, and the line between the holy, modest angel of God and some other artist's appreciation for the goddess Diana or Aphrodite or wherever, whatever, were kind of blurred forever. That's where we found ourselves. Now, you mentioned Eros. Uh, so I'll just say a lot of the women angels of this era, they were actually <clears throat> formed after Nike Victoria. Uh, a lot of the men were formed after uh, Mercury, who is the father of Eros Cupid, or uh, like these genie, the uh, protector spirits over people, especially if you were in the royal family. Um, and, and so, but the one that's the most offensive is the one you mentioned, the one that is behind kind of the Valentine's Day uh, cards that we have. This cute little baby or toddler angel, he originally was a teenager um, in, the, in uh, the iconography. He was rendered younger and younger and younger, uh, sometimes because of his ability to shoot the arrow perfectly. He was depicted blindfolded, and other times because the arrow would come from nowhere, he was depicted as um, omnipresent. So when you look at kind of some of the artwork that popped up during the Renaissance era, what you have is this little baby angel who's cute and chubby, often blindfolded, always shooting arrows, and often in several places of the picture at once. We don't understand that the god Eros, by the way, his name literally translates to sexual desire. It's, it's the word that we original, we eventually derive the English word erotic. Um, he was the winged god of erotic love, carnal lust, passion, fertility, uh, illicit affairs. His whole purpose in living was to mischievously meddle with the other gods and goddesses of the pantheon. So his arrows that he shot, they didn't create this, you know, little hearts floating down type, Twitter-pated, romantic Disney's Bambi type love, what they created was an irresistible lust in the recipient toward a specifically deviant affair. Um, and these affairs, again, were very uh, sexually divergent from what we would consider anything healthy. Even in modern times, it, it, we'd still look at that and think that what was going on in, with the gods and goddesses in the pantheon was was crazy. So that's what's going on. I mean, so remember that, you know, the next time that you buy that uh, Valentine's Day card, the, the little baby angel, it, it, it draws its origins from an exceptionally immoral, uh, uh, explicit, uh, quite porn pornographic branch of paganism. So this is where a lot of this comes from. 
and I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but a lot of this ramped up even another notch when we get into the, the, the Joan of Arc scene and the trial that happened in the 1400 because of her visions of the Archangel Michael. I, I do want to come back to uh, Joan of Arc. We've, we've just got a, this is a short segment. Uh, we're going to go into a break very shortly, but just uh, let me, uh, let me ask uh, Ali about this. You mentioned the, uh, the arrow, uh, Eros and his uh, bow and arrow. Uh, do angels carry weapons, a sword, for example? Well, we see them portrayed as having a sword. You know, the one that guards, now we're talking about the cherubim now, but the one that guards the um, the gate at Eden carries a sword. It's a sword of fire, if I remember right. Um, you know, so we, we know that celestial beings do carry weapons. Um, and yet, we also see that the angels who appear sometimes appear as people, sometimes they appear in the spirit realm, sometimes they appear in a dream, and so their ability to carry weapons or not, um, you know, it, it, it does seem to vary with the different accounts. Now, of the stories that people have told us for, um, for this book, uh, none of them reported seeing a weapon on, their, on the angel that visited mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many angels uh, are there? Do we know approximately? I mean, are, are we talking hundreds of thousands? Are we talking millions? How many angels are there? Well, uh, you know, if you, if you look at Revelation 5.11, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So <laughs> I did the math on that until I lost count, and I landed at a minimum of 100 million <laughs> angels. And so it's kind of interesting because, you know, people, we refer to guardian angels and people refer to them as, you know, my angel, I know my angel. But what we forget is actually, even if there is a guardian angel assigned to us, which I personally believe there is, you know, um, it's not our angel. It belongs to God. (laughs) You know, it might be assigned to us, but God has lots and lots of angels, at least, uh, you know, at least 100 million and, and, and thousands more than that. And um, we only know a couple of names. I mean, Lucifer, we know he was an angel. Uh, we know Michael and Gabriel. Are those the only angels that are named? Seems to me there's a Raphael, or is that a misconception? Well, okay. So in the actual King James version of the Bible, what we have is Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Now, there are extra biblical, um, you know, apocryphal books, which do name other angels and some fallen angels. Uh, the Book of Enoch names quite a few, and there are a lot of other works that also name them. Um, and for me, you know, when I'm using these extra-biblical works, if they reinforce what I find in the King James Bible, then, then I, I will I sometimes cite them in my work and, and use them in my research. Um, but when, they, when I can't verify it by what's in the King James Bible, then I'm open-minded to it, but I, I don't state it as fact. So got I can it. tell okay, you I've for to, certain sorry, I've got that to, the names three are the ones you mentioned. Sorry. Okay, I've got to take a quick time out. We'll come okay. back and uh, continue to talk angelic encounters and what the Bible says about angels. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
In the uh, second hour, we will get into some of the angelic encounters that are described in uh, the first chapter of Encounters. And uh, the co-authors, Ali Anderson Henson and Donna Howell, stay with us. Um, up until the top of the hour, I want to continue to talk about the, uh, the the true nature of angels, what the Bible says about them, their mission, and so forth. Um, we were talking about a little bit about uh, guardian angels and how, how you believe it's likely we each have one. Uh, it's not ours, as you say. It's God's, but it may be assigned to us. Uh, are there... Are there clues, uh, any way of knowing, aside from actually seeing one, uh, to know that when they might be around? What have you learned in in speaking with people that have had angelic encounters? Other clues that we may be in the midst of an angel or in the presence of an angel? The, The common denominator that I've heard from the people who had an angelic encounter that in my opinion, aligned with the examples that we see in the Bible. So, you know, an angel that shows up, performs, you know, a ministry or a miracle or delivers a message and, and then leaves and praises God while he's doing these things. Um, for the people that I've spoken with that have had encounters like that, the common denominator that I've seen, and it hasn't been in every case, but it, it's the most common one I see, and that is that the colors are vivid. And mm-hmm. what I continually get from these people is that um, there are no words to describe the way the colors are. You know, um, Brian Duvall, who we can talk about if you want to, um, he, he was, he was l- stuck under his lawnmower in a really curved position, it, it was, and he was stuck that way for a while. He could see the sky, and he said it was blue but not blue like, like we know blue. <laughs> you know, and he really wasn't able to explain what he meant by this blue, but it it wasn't a different color. It was just something so much more exquisite than our human eyes ever see. And that's kind of probably the most common one I hear from people who have the kind of angelic encounter um, as far as a clue that there's one around. Uh, A light out of the corner of the eye. Some of the people who have experienced an angelic intervention didn't see the angel head on. They saw a light out of their peripheral vision and, and, you know, the entity either helped them or spoke to them or saved them. They never saw it face to face, but there was a light in their peripheral. So that's another one. I know that, uh, you know, there's supposed to be a a final battle between uh, good and evil and uh, the angels presumably would be involved in that. But prior to that final battle, are God's messengers... Uh, are they engaged in warfare? I mean, we talk about spiritual warfare, but what does that mean? Are they actually battling fallen angels now as we speak all around us? Weapons drawn and so forth? Well, again, you know, in, in the situation in Daniel, you know, angels, um, you know, Daniel 10, Daniel had prayed and the angel comes and he says, now he's been 21 days, he's been delayed, and he says, Fear not, the first day you prayed, the angel was on the way, but the Prince of Persia delayed until Michael came to assist in this spiritual warfare. Um, You know, so we understand that when we pray, God dispatches help to us. 
sometimes it's delayed because God has a perfect timing in our life, and, you know, there's a lesson we have to learn, or there's, there's some reason that God has it delayed. But that particular passage shows us that sometimes the answer to our prayer is on the way, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's delayed because spiritual warfare is happening on our behalf in the unseen realm. And here we are in this physical realm, you know, thinking that our prayers are just going unanswered, and really we don't realize that our, our prayers are being fought over in the spirit realm. And in the final battle between good and evil, what, what t- talk to me about how that's going to play out with and, and the role of the angels uh, really on both sides of that battle. Okay, Revelation is a book that I encourage people to study, um, but I also encourage people to remember when they study it that there are scholars who have dedicated their entire life to understanding Revelation, and they still debate with each other. So Revelation is a really Mm -hmm. complicated book. And with that being said, I can tell you my interpretation (laughs) of how this this kind of plays out. First of all, um, the angels are very involved in the judgments, and in the um, in, in there, you know, you have the seven bowls, and there are the seven seals. There are the seven trumpets, and the angels are are very involved in all of this, um, and they're following God's orders the whole time. And every time God comes out victorious, you know, they are then praising God in the throne room, and you see you see all this praise, and it, they they're also, however, at the same time, all throughout the judgments and the wrath of God, and everything that's happening in Revelation, they're also still preaching the gospel to mankind, trying to get mankind to change his ways. But there is a moment in time that God tells them to unleash the fallen angels which are chained in the Euphrates, and when they come up, then they head, they head toward uh, a place that is highly debated in, in scholarly uh, fields, but that is basically the Battle of Armageddon, and that's the final battle between good and evil. And the angels will be part of that. The fallen angels will be part of that. That's, that's kind of an all-hands-on-deck war <laughs> that will take place between good and evil. And that's not going to take place in a spiritual realm, right? That's, if you were there, uh, if you were at, is it Gog and Magog? If you were yeah. there, would you, would you see their presence? Would you see this battle taking place? It's a highly debated point because some people believe it's metaphorical. Some people believe Mm -hmm. that it takes place in the spirit realm and we're not going to know it's happening. And then some people say, no, this is a literal battle. It's going to happen on the earth. Now, for me, I kind of go with that last point of view, and here's why. Because the entire book of Revelation, you see, you know, uh, the sun and the stars are damaged. A third of our water becomes bitter. You know, we lose a third of our vegetation. I mean, the earth is getting irreparably damaged at this point in time. Why would all of that happen? And then this metaphorical or spiritual realm battle occurs and and we don't see that in the physical realm everything else up to that point has been taking place in the physical realm and and it's it's climaxing toward a place where something very final happens to the earth and then it's recreated which happens at the end of revelation we have the new the new heaven and the new earth the creation of all of it um it's remade without flaws, thank God, <laughs> you know, and, and so it, to me, it really seems to make sense that this would be a battle here in the physical realm, because you have all this physical realm destruction taking place up to that point. And 
will humans also take part in that battle? In other words, would the would God's messengers be recruiting uh, believers, and would the the uh, fallen angels be recruiting uh, those who are not believers? I guess. I don't believe they will fight in those battles, and here's why. Because if we're watching the book of Revelation, uh, you know, the throne room becomes increasingly filled. We, you know, we have the elders come in, we have the martyrs show up under the altar. I mean, more, more people are arriving in the throne room. And what we see is a battle raging for the souls of mankind. But all throughout, we see that God, he's... he's He's asking people to turn from their wicked ways and serve him. And the, the book of Revelation says periodically throughout it, man repented not of his blasphemy and his idolatry. But we also do know that some will repent, and they are the ones that are sealed in the forehead uh, by an angel, by the way. And, and so we see all of this happening, but we don't see any notation of recruiting. We only see that that the humans are kind of caught in this crossfire, and they're being asked to choose. So choose you this day who you will serve, that is happening in Revelation. But there is no choose you this day who you will fight with. And so my personal opinion is that this battle is taking place between entities that probably we couldn't physically stand up to, honestly. Um, and we, we will be, you know, we will be in there somewhere, and a lot of us will be, you know possibly deceased by then, you know, but it's, I believe that we don't actually take up weapons and join the fight. All right. We are heading into the uh, top of the hour and uh, Allie Anderson Henson and Donna Howell will stay with us. We'll open up the phone lines as well. Take your questions, comments, and hopefully here are some angelic encounters and Allie and Donna will share some as well from their book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Don't go away. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. And thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And we continue to discuss angelic interventions this hour. Ali Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, the co-authors of Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. Uh, before we get back to that conversation, a quick programming note coming up next week. Filmmaker, ufologist James Fox will be here for the full two hours discussing his new documentary, The Phenomenon. Uh, and then in two weeks, uh, lawyer Rocco Galati will be here. I'm uh, not sure um, if you've been following Rocco's exploits. He's been very active on Twitter, but he's also been very active in the courts uh, fighting uh, the uh, the lockdowns and the protocols and so forth. And he obviously has a lot to say uh, about how COVID has been uh, handled. And I think he's doing a tremendous work in this regard. One of the few people who's actually standing up and pushing back uh, it, by legal means, of course. I'm not advocating anything illegal here. Let's be clear about that. But uh, Rocco Galati will be here in uh, in uh, two weeks. All right. Um, 
Now, let me see here. I'm just getting a message from Carlos. Apparently, we may be having some uh, some phone issues, uh, some software phone issues, uh, which may make it difficult for people to call in. However, uh, for those of you who are on the uh, live chat, in the live chat, we certainly welcome your questions. And then Ryan will relay those to me and um, uh, and I will read them out. Uh so I want to start, though, with a couple of the uh, the angelic encounters in the book and uh, Dorothy Spaulding. I wanted to start with hers because uh, I believe there's actually two uh, encounters with uh, with Dorothy. And was that Allie? Was that um, a story that you were told from by Dorothy? Yeah. I, yeah, I had um, I had told you. Yeah, about it. Um, yeah. She had two stories that she told. Um and both happened to her late at night. One was she had been ministering in a team, and the team had been getting on this public uh, bus system, and her other half of her team, well, more than half, everybody on the team except her got put on a different bus, and she ended up on one by herself. And she got on the bus, and the bus driver said something to the effect of, you're going to have to talk to me and help me stay awake. And, um, and she, she talked to him for a while, but she fell asleep. And when she woke up, she heard shouting, and the bus had he, the bus driver had fallen asleep. He had drifted across the lanes that were traveling the direction that they were going through the median and hit some trees on the way through the median and was headed into oncoming traffic. And she she just immediately started praying and said, "In the name of Jesus, nobody on this bus will be hurt." And the bus literally lifted and went all the way back across the median out of oncoming traffic and back into the lane where it belonged. And it went to, if I remember right, it went to the far right lane in this highway, because it was a highway that had more than one lane traveling each direction. went all the way to the far right lane. And the bus driver pulled over and looked at the bus, and even from hitting the trees in the median, there wasn't a scratch on the bus. And he got back on the bus and he told her, I'm sure glad you were on here tonight because she immediately had started praying in the name of Jesus. Nobody on this bus will be hurt. She never saw an angel, but it has to be an angelic intervention when the bus lifts up and goes all the way across the highway and back into the far right lane, you know. Right, right. And, and uh, I mean, do angels, I would, I would imagine they would have a tremendous physical strength, um, or do they also have other powers do we know of could they can they perform sort of acts of levitation or would they literally pick the bus up with their with their arms i'm not sure physically how they go about it because the bible doesn't 100 percent describe all of these things but i can tell you that in acts 12 you know peter is in prison and the angel goes into him the chains drop off the gate is unlocked he's able to completely walk out guards who are nearby if you've ever heard a heavy chain drop to the ground, it's loud. They didn't wake up. They stayed asleep. So this angel was able to manipulate a lot of things in the physical realm. So we know that they have a lot of power to manipulate things in the physical realm. They can interact with, with animals. We see that in the story with Balaam's donkey and numbers. You know, uh, we already have talked about the fact that they can appear in our dreams. They can fly. I mean, they really do have a lot of power in our physical realm. Uh, so... We we discussed Dorothy's first encounter. There was mm-hmm. a second one. Yeah, her second one, she was actually saved from a sexual assault. So what happened was she was driving, uh, and she was driving a borrowed car. And anybody who 
anybody who runs their gas gauge down to E, which I'm terrible about, um, you know how far you can push your car before you're actually going to run out of gas. Well, this was a borrowed car, and she was on E, and she was down kind of below E, and she knew she couldn't push it very far, and she couldn't get to a gas station. So she pulled over. She was driving along by some water, and she pulled over off the road and went down to this place below where there were a bunch of people uh, kind of on the side of a, a big river, and they were fishing, and she said, can any of you help me? I'm, I need gas. And this man came up and got into the back of his truck and got a, a gas can out, and he was pouring this gas into her car. And she said she just felt impressed to talk about Jesus the whole time. So she's saying, he's pouring this gas in her car, and she's saying, do you know about Jesus? Do you know he loves you? Do you know he has a plan for your life? And she just kept saying this kind of stuff. And... Um, so he finishes putting the gas in her car. She gave him $5, and he told her, okay, go ahead and get in it and see if you can get it to start. Well, she gets in the car, and he starts to come in behind her, and he's putting his hand on her thigh, you know, doing some things that let her know that he's got some intentions to take advantage of her. And she said her immediate thought was to say, in the name of Jesus, you can't touch me. I'm a minister. And the guy kind of, he it took him aback, you know, he kind of stepped back and he kind of looked at her and it stunned him, but he started coming into the car again and he, tr he tried it again. And she said, in the name of Jesus, you cannot touch me. I am a minister. And she said immediately an invisible force picked him up and took him backward many feet and froze him still in this parking lot and she said he was just standing there completely still couldn't move his arms or legs looked completely stunned and then she said she felt god basically impressing her drive get go get out of here get to safety and she drove away she said that as far away until he faded into her rearview mirror he was still frozen in place wow uh, that's uh, that's pretty powerful <laughs> yeah, uh, has yeah anyone... absolutely has anyone and, ever and captured? What she said is that, oh, you know, oh, go ahead. God helps us because we call on his name. Both times she said, in the name of Jesus. And that's when the help was dispatched. So that's part of her story is remember whose child you are and who you call on for help. And he will send help when you need it. Right, right. And um, has an angel, have you ever seen, I don't know, photographic evidence? Uh, has anyone ever claimed to have captured an angel on on film on a video camera on a still camera yes and in our in our looking for stories to include in this book we found a few that seemed very compelling but unfortunately um, you know there are so many ways <laughs> these days <laughs> that people can doctor mm -hmm. and 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 can tamper with film and photographs and things like that we, we shied away from anything that couldn't be really verified. And so we didn't end up including a lot of it. But there are, I mean, you, you can look it up online and you can Google, you know, I, sentences like, I caught an angel on, on camera. And some of them look really convincing and some of them look like they might be photoshopped. But it's very hard with the way, the way deep fake technology is, um, is evolving. It's very easy uh -huh. for people to encrypt things over the top of others. I'm sure you're well aware of this. It gets right, real yes. hard to get it verified, and that's kind of where we shied away from some of that. Sure, but would it make sense that they could be captured on film, or would it seem very unlikely that we could capture you know, something from, uh, that is of the spiritual world that we could capture that on camera? 
Do you have an opinion on that? Any thoughts? I, I believe that if God wanted them to be captured on film, it would absolutely be possible. I don't believe sure. that anything is impossible, and I, I believe that if, um, if for some reason, you know, God felt that it would bring glory to Him or make a life-changing situation in someone's life to have it caught on a, on a camera, sure, I believe it could be. Uh, Tom Horn is the uh, the founder of Skywatch TV and Defender Publishing, and uh, he's included in the book. He had a rather interesting angelic encounter. I'm not sure uh, if this is your story, Donna, or or yours, Allie, but whoever uh, spoke to Tom about his angelic encounter, I'd love to hear about it. Okay. Well, um, it was actually an angelic and a demonic encounter, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, he was he was was when he was young. And it was one of the early churches he was pastoring. Um, he was an ordained minister for, you know, many, many, many years. And so he was having a church service, and toward the end of the church service, there was some commotion in the parking lot. And some people were kind of gathering around this particular car and looking. Well, and as the pastor, you know, immediately he starts to go see what's the trouble. And he heads toward this car, and um, a young man jumps out. And he, he's, he's possessed. It took him a while to figure out what was going on. Not very long, but I mean, right at first, he jumps out and he says, I'm going to kill you, preacher. And he starts going, lunging at him and, and, and growling at him. I mean, you know, it didn't take him very long to figure out what was going on with him. Um, and he, he was trying to attack him. And so at this point in time, you know, a lot of the strong men in the congregation gathered around him. They were trying to restrain him. And honestly, with several men, they at times couldn't fully restrain him. And he would just lunge right out of their grip, you know. And he would, he would kind of get subdued, and then he would get this evil look in his eye, and he would jump up again and come after him. This was going on for a little bit, and some point during as people started realizing what was happening, now you've got people standing around praying, and they're calling on the name of Jesus, you know, those that aren't trying to restrain him are standing by praying. And he he starts to lunge toward Tom, and some invisible force, very similar to the Dorothy Spalding situation, picks him up, throws him backward 10 feet, and he lands on the ground. Now, now a bunch of men jump on top of him. They're able to restrain him. Tom gets closer to him, and... Um, you know, immediately starts saying, you know, do you want to be delivered from this? And, and it takes a while to have a conversation with one of these people because the evil entities that have possessed them don't like to let them speak. But eventually uh, they do, they, they cast the demon out of him, and the young man gave his heart to the Lord. And what was interesting, uh, I didn't mention this last night, but the, the girl who had driven the car said that he had come out that morning and he, he got in the car, he looked straight down, and he had told her each time she was supposed to turn which way to turn, but he never looked up. He just knew which way he needed to go. At some point during the night, he had decided to give his heart to the Lord, and that was when the the, the conflict for him began. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah, and again, an, an invisible force pulls him backward, restrains him, and then the, the men, you know, jumped in there, and they were praying over him, and that was a victory. <laughs> but it was an angelic and a demonic encounter. Right, and, okay, and dozens of witnesses, by all accounts. And dozens of witnesses, it sounds yes. like. Yes, all, all, the, all the church body saw it. Wow. Um, I want to go to the uh, YouTube live chat. We have some questions here. And uh, you betcha, that's his, uh, his nom de, de plume, if you will. You betcha asks, do angels watch everything? Do I have no privacy? Are they watching me take a bath? 
and during all other intimate moments? Either uh, uh, Donna or Allie, if you want to handle that question. Do they do they see everything? Do they are they constantly watching us even during our most private moments? Okay. Um, well, my personal opinion is that when an angel is assigned to you, it is watching. Um, and at the same time, I understand how that could be like, as you're saying, do I have no privacy? These beings have been watching humanity since the dawn of time. They have seen everything that there is to see. They're not watching in that way. They are watching for your safety. They are watching to keep evil entities away from you. They're watching for, you know, a car that's about to blow out a tire and may crash into you. They're watching for your well-being. They're interested in your soul. If they were interested in the temporal, they might have fallen with Lucifer, and that's not what happened. They, they are not interested in the kinds of things that we think about when we worry about our privacy. They are interested in the final destination of our soul. Um, and the best way I can think of to compare this is to kind of say, you know, a doctor will open your mouth and look inside your throat, or, or he, may, he may look at your, your body. He's not looking at you in a way that you should be concerned about because the idea is a very good doctor is looking to help you remain safe, remain healthy, and, you know, a good doctor will not be thinking about a patient in the way of an invasion of privacy. And so that that would be my answer, but I've got to tell you it's another one of those that scholars can debate for a lifetime, and each but each of them would have a different opinion. So um, there there could be other authorities on that that might give you a different answer that you like better than mine. <laughs> All right. Uh, Show me the truth. 74. I love these handles. Show me the truth. 74 asks, is there a thin veil between this life and heaven? Has anyone seen it? We know, theologically speaking, okay, this has a lot to do with some of the very heavy research that I've done on Halloween or All Hallows Eve. Um, And so it, 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 it's not anything that would fit this interview to go into in great depth. But I will say, as far as the veil between us and the unseen realm, it's not something that we as humans have the authority to just step through any time that we'd like to. But when God gives uh, one of his messengers the authority to move through, they certainly do have the capability to move directly through the veil. There is that veil. I mean, veil... That's an English word, so it, it might make something sound like a curtain. That's something you could reach out and touch, and certainly not. It's an inc- incorporeal existence, a realm that is all around. So in the same way that we have spiritual warfare happening all around us, we certainly have, uh, you know, that that something that is protecting us from being able to see it. Uh, by the way, Richard, earlier you were asking about um, angels being able to see on camera. And sometimes yes. when I go to pipe in into this conversation, I, I, I just don't want to interrupt. But I was going to say something very fascinating about that. In the book of Revelation, when it talks about the angel that is going to um, proclaim the gospel of Christ, and that you can't escape this message. It's going to be everywhere. Everybody on earth will be aware of it. 
one of the, uh, and it's just a theory, but it's one of the theological theories that is postulated by, uh, very popularly postulated by a lot of leaders in the church today or theologians, um, is that this is, this is something that could be captured directly on camera. And, you know, before you know it, it's going to be all over YouTube, CNN, every, every, you know, whether it's, Real news or fake news, every single, it's going to be broadcasting everywhere because it's going to be a literal angel. Once again, remember that literal angels is not going to be flying around on a cloud with a harp and golden hair. It's not going to be a woman. It's not going to have wings. But when the angels in the Bible show up, and this is, this is related somewhat to the veil question, when the, when the angels of the Bible show up, what's the first thing that they say? They always say, fear not. They look like men, and they are described more often than not as looking like a man, being recognized as a corporeal man. doesn't mean that they have flesh. It means they appear to. Uh, when they show up and they appear, it's fascinating that the first thing that they always say is, don't be afraid. Fear not. That whatever they look like when they do arrive in that fierceness is very fierce. <laughs> so when when this I don't want to call it a thing, but when this thing that we don't understand is going to arrive in the book of Revelation in, in this, you know, the futurist theological explanation, uh, when they arrive and they preach the gospel and there is nobody that can get away from that, I don't think it's going to necessarily play out like an, like the clouds part and an angel, you know, kind of leans forward on his elbow and says something real loud and we all see it from the same cloud angle. I think it could possibly, and I'm not alone in this theory, be talking about something that is literally broadcast over every device, every cell phone. It takes over, right? Anyway, I wanted to throw that out there. So the veil, um, we do have the veil. It's this, it's this, uh, it's incorporeal. You can't reach out and touch it. But as far as the research I've done on Halloween, and it is a different conversation. I don't want to go into that tangent. Uh, when you look at what happens every, uh, historically, not necessarily right now, I'm not talking about American soil or Canadian soil, but historically on All Hallows Eve, there was a, a, a reportedly to be a thinning of the veil. And what, what occurred when that happened was that suddenly the spirit world uh, and, and by the spirit world, I'm specifically referring to evil here because the, the the good spirit world, the angels, the angelos, right. the messengers of God, they always have access. The evil has a tendency to peek through as if that veil is not there on one night a year, or at least that is, that is where a lot of that theology comes from. All right. Well, um, that's interesting, and thank you for uh, for adding that to the conversation. We will uh, take a quick time out, come back. We are having some software phone issues, so we'll continue to field calls from the uh, the YouTube channel live chat, and uh, we'll uh, we'll also share some more angelic encounters from Ali and Donna's book Encounters: Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, 
Donna or Ali, one of you earlier mentioned uh, the uh, the case of Brian Duval, who is a uh, a drummer in a Christian rock band and a uh, well a, a husband, father, professional entertainer in Branson, Missouri. Uh, I'll get one of you to tell us uh, that uh, encounter. Okay, I I can do that. <laughs> um, so Brian Duval, uh, yeah, he's a drummer in Branson. He's an entertainer. And he was going through a period of time where he decided to earn some side money, and he was running a mowing business. And so he was mowing at this house, and nobody was home. The house was empty, and his his mower was a zero turn and ideally should have had a roll bar on the back, but it did not have one. And the way he was loading it into the back of his truck, he was using the kinds of ramps where there's, a, there's an opening in between them. So he got about halfway up, and there was something. He had done this a million times before, but there was something about the incline of the way he parked his truck that day that as the mower got up off the ground, it was back heavy. It flipped backward. Now, he was seat-belted to the seat, and it flipped so fast that he couldn't get out from under it. And what it did was it rolled over on him, and it pinned him to the ground with his... um with his back of his head and his shoulders on the ground and his spine curved over the top of him where his knees were kind of more toward his head, basically. And oh, the weight of the mower was on top of his body. And it happened so fast that the, the disengage in the seat that should have caused the mower to shut off didn't work. So I forgot to mention that last night. Um, he's sitting there. He's upside down. He's pinned to the ground under the weight of this zero-turn mower. It's still running, and now it's dripping gas on him. So, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. It's a very important detail. Um, and so he immediately says, Jesus, please don't let me be alone. And out of his peripheral vision, he's one of these that saw the light in the peripheral vision, um, he, he just heard a voice saying, we need to shut off the mower. And he's trying to figure out how to get to the key, and he's trying to turn it off, and the, he, he's having trouble with it, and he's panicking a little bit, which is making him, you know, not uh, not work so well at figuring this out. You know how your brain kind of freezes when you panic? And, um, and, the, and the angel just says, we need to do this, tells him how to shut it off. And then it says, and he said this voice was audible, we need to call your wife. And he's trying to get his phone out of his pocket, but the way he's pinched, he can't seem to get to his phone. And, and, and the, the being says, you know, do this, and this is how you get your phone free. And so he, he gets his phone free. He, he manages to dial. Um, he gets her voicemail, and then the angel says, we, next we need to call. And so this angel is talking him through how to get him help to himself in this situation um he ended up staying pinned under that mower but he did get it shut off he was pinned under it until the paramedics arrived and he said that that being stayed by him the entire time and comforted him and reassured him and 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 helped him get get help and he said while he was laying there he was looking at the sky and it was that very amazing color of blue that was more than blue and kind of not blue except it was blue he had a real hard time describing it um but it was kind of a supernatural blue basically and um the the paramedics came they got him they got his and in fact when the paramedics got there they started acting like they were going to lift the mower off of him but that would have created a complication because of the way he was pinned and the way he was attached to it and the and the 
angel said to him they need to do it this way and so he told them hold on guys you can't just lift it you've got to do it this way and he told them what the angel had said and they did they did that and they were able to get him out of it they they got him you know into the ambulance uh he got a hold of his wife and his wife met him at the hospital but uh that angel stayed with him until the paramedics had him uh out from under the mower and it's just another interesting thing the paramedics Mm -hmm. worked around the angel they don't step through him that is another common thing I've heard. When you have a situation where somebody's being uh, ministered to while there are paramedics, the paramedics don't step through them. They somehow unknowingly work around them, which is interesting. That is interesting. And it's also interesting when you contrast Brian Duvall's encounter with Dorothy Spaulding, uh, yes. because it's almost a very non-interventionist uh, encounter with Brian Duvall. The the angel certainly had it with within its power to simply lift that mower to make everything right with the you know the snap of a finger, uh, and yet he simply talked Brian through it and made Brian do a lot of the the heavy lifting, if you will. Why, why do you suppose that is? Why do some angels uh, manipulate the environment and uh, and manifest things, and and others do it this way? Well, the quick answer to that is they're following the orders God has given them. And so for some people, God is going to say, go in and, and, and completely overthrow this entire situation and fix it. And then in a different person's life, God is going to say to the angel, go and minister to that person while they continue to endure what they're enduring. I can't answer for all of that because each of us has a different path. But I will say that Brian Duvall believes that while he was in the hospital bed, um, being, you know, worked on for these injuries, um, he believes that he had a, a real-life um, epiphany where the direction of his life and his position with God and a lot of things about his direction in general uh, were, were, re, were redefined by the experience. And so maybe that's why. Maybe because ultimately what we do with our soul is more important than what our body goes through. And so maybe it's because God says, I'm going to let you endure this because the condition of your soul will be improved. Interesting, interesting. Uh, going back to the live chat, I have two questions. I'm going to kind of roll into one, and I hope uh, A, Leon, and Chad will forgive me, but there's kind of a madness to my, uh, or a method to my madness <laughs> here. Uh, because they're, they're, uh, both of these uh, people are asking about angels uh, and ghosts and aliens, and I'm just gonna kind of reshape the question a bit because I'm wondering if um, angelic encounters uh, have been perhaps conflated with or confused with uh, something paranormal or something of a different paranormal nature. For example, uh, an angel, an angelic encounter might be perceived as uh, a, a, a ghost. Or it may be perceived as uh, some sort of an uh, an alien uh, encounter. I will uh, speak to that super quick. First of all, it, it it is technically possible that that they would show up in a way that doesn't just look like a man, like we've been talking about the fear not man, uh, because again, they do show up in in places of. It, it, regardless of the fact that we've got the seraphim and the cherubim, which are completely different created beings, we do have an angel, the Bible says angel, that shows up in Revelation with one foot on sand, one foot on sea, and his, his head is like a rainbow. 
So would it show up as a ghost or an alien? I think that really depends on the person's personal interpretation. Is it possible that it would look ghost-like and later be described in, in words that sound that way? Possibly. But I don't think that the person who viewed this messenger of God would ever state, oh, this angel was a ghost. I mean, they might say, you know, it was a spirit, and the words later on get misconstrued and sound to that degree. But here's what we can remember. In the Genesis 6-4 narrative, what we're dealing with is a fallen angel, right? So I'm going to get through this as quickly as I can. When the angels fell, they were no longer uh, the same kind of being that is referred to in Matthew when Jesus is talking about how the angels, um, he's talking about these incorporeal spirits, and he says that, you know, angels, like in heaven, they will not marry or whatever, and there's this whole question about whether or not angels have a gender, and, and how, if they, if they don't marry or are given in marriage in heaven, then how come when they fell, they were able to reproduce with the women and the Israelites and do this Nephilim thing? The answer is the fact that when they fell, they became a different being. So when we look at what appears to a person today, getting back to the original question, um, if this being appears and there is any level of, of fear that there is something evil going on and you test the spirit, same way Ali said earlier from First John 4, you give it the spirit test. You say, who do you believe that Jesus is? It doesn't matter if it looks a certain way to one person and a certain way to another person. Angels are intrinsically spirit. They are incorporeal. They don't have flesh. They take on the appearance of flesh. They, they, they have moments where in, uh, throughout scripture, we have been able to interact with them. They have been able to eat. They have been able to touch us. They become something that we can physiologically interact with. But by nature, these are incorporeal spirit beings. It, it, God could make them appear in any number of different ways. I've even heard uh, a woman suggest that this white dog that appeared to her one day was an angel. I don't necessarily believe that that's um, 100% reliable theology, but what I'm saying is it's, it's, it's God's prerogative how an angel will appear. The bottom line is not how will it appear, it's who does he say God is. And that's what we need to be thinking about. We are not supposed to be uh, interacting with or putting our faith or our trust in anything that cannot instantaneously and immediately say, yes, the, you know, the, the first John 4 test, the testing of the spirits, Jesus is the one who, who died, was raised and ascended and is at the right hand of the Father. Worthy is his name. This is the test of the spirits. And if they can pass that, the Bible makes it very clear this is something that this is something that works for the same Lord that we serve. If it's somebody who di- redirects your question, well, hang on, let's not talk about Christ. First, I want to tell you about what happened over here. You see this car or whatever, whatever it is. If they redirect or they can't specifically worship God on a dime, that's not whatever it is, whether it looks like an alien or not, that is not of God. Excellent point. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. Come back, more angelic encounters and more questions from our YouTube live chat and uh, the book again, Encounters, Extraordinary Accounts of Angelic Intervention and What the Bible Actually Says About God's Messengers. Allie Anderson Henson and Donna Howell, stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. 
is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. I'm going to go right to the YouTube live chat for some questions. Diecast Garage asks, how do our prayers empower angels? Uh, Ali or Donna, either of you can feel that one. How do our prayers empower angels? Okay, I can I can take that one. Um, when we pray, we are directing, and I want I want to be careful with the word energy because it's been kind of taken over by New Age movements. But what I mean when I say energy is I mean our focus, our trust, our faith. If I sit down and I pray and I read my Bible, I am putting my energy into my relationship with God. Okay, um, when I pray to an angel. Uh, if, I, if I'm praying to a holy angel, it will stop me, which means if it's accepting my prayers, I am now directing my, my focus, my resources, my time, uh, my, my thoughts, my energy, uh, all of these things, I focus them into a negative entity, which feeds the negative forces in my life because I'm welcoming more of that kind of power. When I sit down and I pray to God and I invite him into my life. I read my, like I said, I read my Bible, I pray. Every time I run into a problem and I'm asking him to help me with that, basically every time I lean on God and I interact with him in any way, I'm saying, God, I need more of you in my life. I can't do it without you. And so if we are if we are praying to angels, we know that a holy angel won't accept it. So we know that if it's accepting your praise or your prayers, that it is an evil entity, what you're doing is you're saying, more of you are welcome here in in my life. And what that does is they moths to a flame. They will answer that call. And pretty soon you will have so much negative spiritual warfare surrounding you. It's, you know, when, when people hit a certain level of that, it becomes very hard to dig out of because, you know, you're, you're, You've got to you've got to call on God and have Him really rescue you from that, which is the only way to handle that anyway. But people who have invited a lot of it into their life, those spirits don't like to let go, and so there's a harder fight when they decide that they didn't want to invite that into their life. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's fascinating. Now, if if uh, God decides uh, that someone needs to struggle. Uh, in order to perhaps purify their soul, does he? Maybe they need to be. Maybe you know. Maybe they need to endure some sort of a, an illness. Does God dispatch an angel to to uh, to carry out that judgment, if you will, or to carry out that action? Maybe even to make that person sick. Does he allow the the fallen angels to do that? How does that work? I don't believe that he allows the fallen angels to incite judgment on somebody who he is allowing to go through a time of trial because it's for their help. Ultimately, if, if a time of trial is because God is working something in your life, a fallen angel wouldn't want any part of that anyway. So they're likely not going to even cooperate. Um, however, you know, there are times in the Bible, we see what Job went through. Job never understood for the longest time why he was dealing with what he was dealing with. And um, we, don't, we don't necessarily see that that was angels administering a judgment to Job. It was just God allowing Job to go through a really hard time. Now, in that time, Satan actually did inflict a lot of things, but we, we kind of see the backstory on that, um, because Satan was trying to work something evil. Uh, you know, and we, we also see 
that God allows other things that aren't necessarily an angel. You know, uh, people right now people are catching viruses. You know, I, it's it's not necessarily uh, an angel of death or or some kind of an evil entity or a good entity. We live in a biological, physical world where some things are just flawed, and these things kind of happen. Um, and in addition to that, then we see the plagues of Egypt, <laughs> where the angel of death, you know, went and and put a plague on the home of everybody who wasn't covered in the blood. So I guess my quick answer to that is. God uses uh, all of the resources that he put within his creation to work all things good for those that love the Lord. And so it could be a mixture of any of these things, but I don't believe that when he's allowing somebody to go through something bad, he sends a fallen angel to incite it as a judgment, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, A quick question here from Not Gordo. Not K-N-O-T, Gordo, asks, do animals have guardian angels? Um, I uh, I don't believe... Sorry, go ahead, Alex. No, no, please go ahead, Donna. You... Um, I don't believe that... Um, so, okay, it, it, going back to George Pember, okay, he wrote Earth's Earliest Ages. He also wrote the book Animals, specific... It's a book that is specific to all questions about animals and theology. Now, there is a long-stated theology under George Pember and a lot of other theologians and uh, actual church historians who agree with him that uh, when you take—so so there's two different kinds of animals, biblically speaking here. There is the animal that is the beast of the field, generically, you know, a cow that you might have slaughtered or whatever— it lives out in the bushes. Sometimes we don't even know that they exist because they are wild-bred, and we don't even know that they're there before they pass away. These, uh, I don't want to say random animals as if they don't matter, but random to us. They are not taken into our home under our dominion, renamed, and given an identity that is spiritual. Okay? Now, fast forward to you have a cat or you have a dog. All right. The theology under George H. Pember of his book, generically called Animals, same guy who wrote Earth's Earliest Ages, uh, an amazing theologian of his day, is that when you do adopt an animal, you bring it into your family, you name it, whatever name that you give it, and you take it under your dominion, it becomes uh, a part of your family, not necessarily in that it suddenly has a soul, but it becomes... Uh, according to this theology, something that you will continue to have as an inheritance under your dominion in heaven. Now, that's just a theology. I'm not saying that's what I personally believe, although I will say that's a very convincing theology. So if you have uh, an animal that you really, truly love, and it's a part of your family, and you've doted on this thing and bought it gifts, and it has its own stocking every Christmas, and this is a different kind of animal than generic beast of the field. That kind of an animal wouldn't necessarily uh, have its own guardian angel. Theologically speaking, there is no grounds for that. However, my uh, guardian angel might take under its Wing, I don't mean wing. <laughs> there we go, angels right. and wings again. <laughs> Take under its protection 
the interest of that animal in the interest of my feelings, my heart, my uh, general interest in life and, and my closeness with the divine because of how the divine uh, communicates to me through the beauty of this animal that I've taken under my dominion. So got it. That's a, put, that's a great that answer. I like thing. that theology. I hope I, I hope this George Pember is right. I hope that's true. I like that. We'll uh, take another time out, come back uh, more with Ali and Donna encounters right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, Allie Anderson Henson, Donna, how, how do we get a copy of uh, Encounters? You can go to skywatchtvstore.com and uh, Encounters is, is there. You just type in the word Encounters. Um, it's, it's by me, Allie Anderson Henson, and Donna Howell. Um, it's skywatchtvstore.com. It's also right, on Amazon. Okay, terrific. Now, let's go back to the YouTube live chat. Silver Sailor asks, uh, do we ask Jesus or God to send his angels to protect us, or do we ask the angel directly? Well, I think we know the, the last part of that is not uh, the way to do it, but do we ask Jesus or God, or does it matter? First well, of all, I would know, like when to we look at commend. the Bible, it says, my help comes from, uh, from the Lord, which made the heaven and the earth. God is our refuge. He is our fortress. He places his angels charge over us. So we definitely are delivered because we call on his name. So it's definitely that we need to ask God for help because he's not always going to send an angel. You know, there are other live human beings that, that also can benefit from being the person who brings us help. It's not always going to be an angel. Sometimes it's going to be another person, and through that relationship that's formed, both of you are ministered to. So definitely calling on God is going to be the best way you're going to get the help you need. All right. And uh, Allie, did you want to add something to that? Oh, that was Allie. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm so, my apologies. Sorry, Donna. Donna, did you want to add something to that? Oh, actually, I was only going to say I would like to commend whoever it was that asked that question because one of the issues that Allie and I have both laughed about while we were working together in the past is how, how many times people will, and very, very innocently, uh, but they'll pray and they'll direct something to one member of the Trinity that is not necessarily uh, supposed to be directed to. And God knows what they mean, and there's certainly no judgment. But I just thought, wow, how clever that that would be a, a, a specific thing to think about. I loved that. Like somebody will say, you know, like, Father God, thank you for dying on the cross. And it's like, well, Father God did, you know, Jesus the Son did. But that's that's why when I heard that question, I was like, commend whoever it was that asked that. <laughs> there you go, Silver Sailor. Good question. Um, tell me, we have a few minutes. I think we can fit this one in. Uh, there was a, a very wealthy, uh, fast-living real estate developer in the book named Michael Kerr, who um, had one angelic intervention and then again another one in later life. Uh, who wants to share that one with us? I can. Um, Mike Kerr, he, uh, he's a, he, he was in, uh, L.A., if I remember correctly, and he, he was a very successful businessman, and he had, uh, he had been injured in an accident, and he ended up on prescription pain meds, and he ended up on them for so long that he became addicted to them, and through a series of events, 
turned out that he became homeless and he was addicted to street drugs. And he was really at the end of his rope. And there was this one morning... It's actually a very sad story. He's sitting near this restaurant where in a, in a younger version of his life, he used to meet his dad and have lunch with his dad there. And now here he is outside, homeless, trying to find a place to get warm. It, you know, he's just miserable. And he finally just said to God, either kill me or save me, but I can't do this anymore. And, uh, and he, pre- he prayed that a couple times in the morning. And two men came up to him, one about, I think it was about 10 minutes apart from each other. The one came up and he said, basically, I don't usually do this. I don't usually have extra shoes in my car. While he was asleep on the street, someone stole the shoes off of his body. And so so this man comes up and he says, you look like you need shoes. I just happen to have extra shoes in my car. This is really unusual, but here you go. And he gives him these shoes. And he turns around to thank him. Guy is gone. Uh, again, a few minutes later. And what was interesting was the second one, you know, I I believe that God will let an angel be what he needs to be to make the person do the right thing. So the second guy is actually a little bit condescending. He comes up and he says, I don't usually give money to bums like you, but here, here's 10 bucks. Now, you know, you would think that an angel would be all, you know, glowy and lovey, but, but he said there was something about the attitude of that guy that spurned him because... He had this money, and he's sitting there holding it, and he's thinking, I can go get my fix, or I can change my life. And there was something about the condescending way the man talked to him that made him want to get up and change his life. And so he got up, he he went and bought a bus ticket. He didn't even know where he was going. He gets on this bus, he rides it literally to the end of the line until the end of the bus route, gets off, and he walks down the street and finds himself at this ministry that had bought an old grocery store and had turned it into a place that does, you know, professional uh, employment placement. They give you a place to live while you get clean. They give you counseling while you're detoxing, and they help you kind of with life skills and things like that. Totally helped him turn his life around, and he ended up starting a ministry. Um, Now, fast forward, you know, uh, many years, he's he's up riding his, uh, his little ATV, up on the mountains near his house, and he lives in an area that it's very snowy. And he ended up, he was on a game trail, and the trail got more and more narrow. And as he's going in, he realizes that he's going to have trouble getting back out. So he decides to back the ATV, and it's, it's right on the edge of an incline where it just it goes down, like really steep. He goes to back it out of this trail he's gotten himself into and he was watching one side too much and he hit a rock on one side and he got he was he was just close enough to the edge that it um the way it happened was he lost control and he he wavered just a little and basically ended up flipping down the mountain he just rolled and this atv rolled down the mountain while he's laying there injured and um you know he just believed that this angel helped him because of the way when when it flipped off the edge, he felt something very distinctly grab him and pull him to a certain place where he would land, not being smashed by the ATV. And wow. um, and, and and through all of it, his his cell phone worked enough that he was able to call a friend and ask for help 
which was also a miracle. So he, he believed that he had both of those angelic interventions in his life. And he went back. It, the, the men were gone right away, and it was weird. But later he really went back when he got his life together, and he tried to find those men, and he never could. And he, it's just one of those things. They looked like people, but he's convinced they were angels. And it matches the biblical description of what an angel does, you know, does something that, that spurns you to action, that helps you get out of a bad place in your life, and then they're just gone. I haven't asked either about whether you, either of you have had an angelic encounter. I have not I had an angelic encounter, but I have had God speak to me in dreams and help me with things I needed to know in my life. That's a quick answer. I will t- let Donna answer. Actually, Allie, that's, that's basically exactly what I was about to say. I've had people that have come into my life and they've said some, some uh, path-altering things to me, and I've never ended up in contact with them again. But it, it's not quite the same as, like, he was there and then I blinked and then he was gone. It's not quite that sensational, but I have had people that I would not be surprised to find out later on uh, were an angelic intervention, but I would not go as far as to say that myself. That's, again, the short answer. I've had dreams, a lot of dreams. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, dreams. How do we know when we're in a dream that it's a genuine communication from either an angel or, or God? The funny thing about a dream is that you're not always in a place where you can test the spirit. Sometimes your dreams are just unraveling, and you're going through them, and you wake up and you go, that was weird. Wait a minute, was God telling me something? Or You know, you're not always cognitive enough in that moment. I would say if you're not in a position where you can test the spirits and it's a dream, I would say examine the fruit. If it fixes in your life and brings you closer to God, then it was a message from God whether it was an angelic visitation or not. Right. All right. We're going to leave it there. Uh, I've learned so much. Thank you again. It was delightful having you on Coast to Coast last night and uh, equally um, engaging and um, fascinating tonight. Uh, Allie Anderson Henson, Donna Howell, Encounters, SkywatchTVStore.com and Amazon. Thank you again both. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure and God bless. All right. My thanks to Carlos Kajina and Ryan White back next week with uh, James Fox talking about his uh, new documentary, The Phenomenon. And then in two weeks, Rocco Galati, uh, attorney fighting uh, the COVID lockdowns. Uh, Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.